Today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 9-7. Isaiah chapter 8, 11 through 9-7. As I said last week, we're taking a bit of a break from the book of Mark. And today begins our celebration of the season of Advent, which will take us all the way through Christmas. So, so Advent. What is Advent? Well, Advent is a word that means arrival, specifically a notable arrival, something or someone whose appearance alters history, whether that's human history on a grand scale or our own history on a personal level, Advent means arrival. But arrival of what? Why do we focus on Advent at this time of year? Well, Advent for us is the season leading up to Christmas when we come alongside those who for centuries awaited the arrival of the promised Messiah, the Christ, who would rescue his people, destroy his enemies, and establish his kingdom, reign, and rule forever. It's in this Advent season that we stand with those who for centuries read God's word and held to God's promise and looked for the Christ's arrival and waited. At Advent, we are those who wait. But of course, we know the rest of the story. We have knocked on the end doors alongside Mary and Joseph. We've been beside the manger in Bethlehem's stable. We've been been deafened by the angelic chorus with the shepherds in the field. We know that Christ has come. We've been reading about it together in our walk through the book of Mark. So why do we need to experience a season of waiting for an arrival? Well, the truth is that we too are in a a historic season of Advent. Just like our ancestors who awaited the initial coming of the Christ, we too, on this side of the cross, await his promised second coming. We look to him who in Revelation 22.20 declares, Surely I am coming soon. And with often fainting breath, we echo those following words from John, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And as those words drift into the darkness of the cosmos, we wait. Yet as we wait, just like those who have gone before, we do not wait empty-handed. We have a faithful God who time and time again has proven himself and proven his word faithful. Therefore, as we await this advent, this arrival together, we remember that we are those who do so with joy, with peace, and with love. And those are the truths that we'll be focusing on over the next few weeks of Advent. But today, as we begin our Advent season, by remembering that we who put our trust in God as we wait, we are those who do so with hope. 
What is hope? Well, in a way, hope is remembering the future. It's seeing a future something as so tangibly concrete that we do not simply wish for it, we have it. It's an already and a not yet. It's holding to something not yet realized. Today we celebrate the advent, or the arrival of hope. And can we be honest with ourselves today? We could use some hope. Hope can be hard. It's hard to watch a world choking on the air of human pride and social and political despair. It's hard to watch those that we love struggle in the shackles of this broken world. It's hard to wait as the name of God is smeared and misused and distorted and abused. It's hard to stand up and fight against our enemies because often the greatest harm we experience in this world is that which we do or have done to ourselves. And so today we ask, even when the enemy is so big, and we feel so sorely under-equipped for the battle, is it still okay to persist? Can we in this world still truly have hope? And as we celebrate Advent on this shadowed journey toward the Bethlehem stable this year, we're going to do so by walking through sections of the book of Isaiah. Now, why Isaiah? Well, Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet whose name means Yahweh, God, is salvation. And written from about 750 to 700 BC, the book of Isaiah is a message written to God's people in the midst of great fear and lostness and rebellion and despair. Because while Israel's enemies were laying low, the people of Israel enjoyed a season of peace, a time of relative comfort. And in their comfort, they had chosen to abandon their God. They had worshipped other gods. They had trusted other leaders and descended into depths of depravity in the pursuit of their own lusts and sense of self-sufficiency. And in doing so, they had forgotten the God who had rescued them. They had forgotten the God who chose and established them. They had forgotten the God who spoke with and who guided them. In their comfort, they abandoned their God. But now there was a problem. Because the devouring nation of Assyria was rising to the northeast and had set its hungry eyes on the divided nations of God's people, Israel and Judah. But rather than trust God for their defense, Israel began seeking pagan nations to side with, compromising themselves greatly in the hopes that such concessions would lead to their salvation. 
And now Israel, being first on the Assyrian chopping block, reached out to its engaged, excuse me, estranged brotherly nation Judah to join them and the pagan nations to fortify their strength. But rather than side with Israel, Judah tried to link up with the pagan nation of Egypt, which could not protect them. And in doing so, Judah just ticked off Israel and their pagan allies. And now the Assyrian army has conquered Israel and their allies and is knocking on Judah's door. But again, rather than reach out to and submit to God as their ruler and their provider and their protector, they go seeking religious and political compromise. Yet again, the powers of this world and the sacrifices to other gods and the belief in their own pride and strength left them with nothing but fear and anxiety and uncertainty. And it's into this immense cloud of despair and looming judgment at the hands of the Assyrians that God sends the prophet Isaiah with a message for God's rebellious people. And surprisingly, what God sends his rebellious and obstinate children is not just a message of condemnation, which they deserve, but also a message of hope. God tells his people of a coming light that will shatter every enemy of darkness. Yet this salvation, God says, will not come through a bigger army. It won't come through the protection of a greater ruler. It won't come through Judah's own gumption and capacity to withstand. No, God's salvation of his people will come not through strength and size, but through weakness. And in the humblest of ways. God's salvation for his people, Isaiah says, will not come through a king but through a child. And the rescuer that God will send will save his people, not just from nations or earthly powers, but from their own sin. And in light of this coming salvation, God declares this bold passage just a few verses before ours. Chapter 8, verse 9 through 10. He says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, All you far countries, strap on your armor and be shattered. You strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. And how can God say this? What can break the yoke of the strongest enemies withstanding their weapons of war? What can outwit their wisest wisdom and quiet even their loudest roars? Verse 10, for Emmanuel, God is with us. Which leads us to our text, verse 11. Isaiah says, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. And warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. 
And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So Isaiah says that he speaks with God's strong hand upon him. Meaning this message was a great weight. This word from God was not light. It was not insignificant or delicate. It was not just a message of wishful thinking. For a people who had lost it, God was delivering a promise of great hope. And to those people, God says that when fear strikes, when their enemies abound and rumors swirl, God's people must not look past the God who is right in front of their face. As his people look at the looming destruction before them and the consequences of their own depravity around them, they may be tempted to look over God. Or around God or, or beyond God to secure their plans or anticipate their moves. But God says, no, don't look at them. Look at me. If you're going to fear anything, fear me. Fear him who stands ready to protect those he loves. Those who desire to walk according to his ways. Let the idea of abandoning God be so fearful to you that you cling to him with your very life. Verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Verse 14, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. To both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So what Isaiah is saying is that when faced with the reality of God, when deciding if we will abandon him and seek another or run to him and abandon all others, in that moment, one of two things will occur. God will be to us either a great sanctuary of hope or a stumbling block of offense. Isaiah says God is both. For those who put their faith and trust in God, he will be their greatest hope, their sanctuary. And for those who seek refuge in anything else, God will be a trap. A snare, a hazard to them in their race to get around God, or over God, or through God, or away from God. They will find him only to be an immovable obstacle and to them a source of aggravation and frustration. And why is this? Is, is God just being mean? This is simply what happens when the lies of sin crash into the reality of truth. 
God does not move even when we demand that he do so. God does not cease to exist even when we try to pretend that he isn't there. And it may seem easy just to, to shut our eyes and ignore God as we run this road of life. But at some point we are going to run into him. And why is this? Verse 10. For Emmanuel, God is with us. And for some that is great comfort. For others, it's a snare. Paul said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So listen, how you view this almighty, sovereign, creator, king of all things, including yourself, will determine whether you experience him as a hope or as a hindrance. If you see God as wrong, someone to be opposed, it's not because God is on the wrong side. But because you are. He is not opposing you. God is for you. But you are opposing him. And oppose him all you want. But he does not and will not move. God never ceases to be God. And again for some that's a source of great hope. For others, it's a source of real hate. But Isaiah says, God will be to you a rock of shelter or a stone of defense, but he will always unchangingly be who he is. He will always be God. And in response to this reality, Isaiah asserts in verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah says, as for me, I will hope in him. Bind the testimony, seal the teaching. God's word is true and his promises as good as done. And how does Isaiah know? Because God has been faithful to him and his people in the past, Isaiah knows that God will be faithful in the future. Even when God's face is hidden, when we don't see what he's doing, even when we don't understand him, God is consistent in a world that is anything but. And this is Isaiah's hope. Verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony. 
If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah says that people will contend, but why trust this God that we can't even see? Where is he? In case you haven't noticed, this world that he's supposedly in charge of doesn't look that great. So, they'll say, verse 19, shouldn't we go to the mediums and necromancers? Now, those were people who claimed to be able to conjure up spirits of the dead to gain future knowledge or discern the future using witchcraft. They were spiritists. Those who affirmed the supernatural realm yet denied God's place and sovereignty over it. Okay, and in case you're thinking about how primitive and silly that seems, there is a business that not half a mile from here offers those, those same exact services, and I have never seen their parking lot empty. This same temptation echoes to us today. Well, sh shouldn't we go around God to get answers? Yes, to, to spirituality or to other religions, but won't, won't they give us what we need? And in response to that, Isaiah says, why would you go to them when your God is right here? Do not trust those who seek a dead spirit to guide. Trust in the living one who has given us truth through the power of his word and his testimony. Do not seek out darkness for the sake of getting light. If you want to know truth, go to God's word. To seek hope from anything or anyone but God and his word is to seek out something that in verse 20 Isaiah says, has no dawn. In other words, it has no light. No knowledge, no wisdom, no insight. They have no light in and of themselves, so how can they give it to you? Likewise, Isaiah says, verse 21, there are those who will grow angry with God as they believe that their needs are not being met. Those who walk through this world and see the brokenness, the depravity, and the evil, and the lies, and the liars... And rather than turning their backs on evil, they turn their backs on God. And they shake their fists in his face and then turn to the things of this world for security. They turn to other people. They turn to themselves. They seek the natural for what only the supernatural can provide. They trust in their own feelings and heart and knowledge or place their faith in the feelings or hearts and knowledge of others who are just like them and assume 
well, this must be the way. And to what end? In their attempts to dispel distress and darkness, they only find deeper distress and darkness. Isaiah says, turn away from God where you will, but there is no other light. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali were in the north-northeastern part of Israel. Okay, so this means that as the Assyrians loomed over and conquered Israel, the areas they first oppressed were Zebulun and Naphtali. But, but notice geographically what we have learned from Mark. Where did the light begin to shine? Where did Jesus begin his earthly ministry? In north, northeastern Israel, in the region of Galilee, which is in Zebulun and Naphtali. God sent the Messiah, the Savior, not far away from his people's oppression and fear, but right into the teeth of it. As Isaiah prophesied, those who existed in the shadow of darkness will be overcome with a great light. Those who had the greatest fear will receive the greatest peace. Those directly in harm's way will be the first to see a Savior. And in light of this, Isaiah just bursts out in praise to God. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah says God has multiplied and increased and sustained his people. He has increased their joy. Even in days of loss and deep distress, God's people praise him in the same way as when they have plenty and are full. And how can they do this? It's because God sustains his people. He's done it before, and he'll do it again. Isaiah says, Assyria's burden, their staff, their rod, God has broken. As on the day of Midian. You know, what, what was the day of Midian? Well, we learn about Midian in Judges 6 through 8. When because of their rebellion against God in pursuit of their own wicked ways, God hands his people Israel over to be conquered by the evil Midianites. 
Yet even in the midst of this captivity, God calls humble Gideon to lead his people out from under their oppression. And on that day, facing an army of 135,000 Midianites, God whittled Gideon's Israelite army down from 32,000 men to 300. Not 300,000, 300, period. God purposely faced the impossible by using the impossible. And not only did God win with Gideon's tiny army, he never even had them pick up a sword. Rather, by following God's direction, which in the moment made absolutely no sense, Gideon's army watched as God threw the Midianites into a panic and caused the mighty Midianite army to destroy itself. And Isaiah says, in a, simil in a similar way, through seemingly small, impossible means, every boot of the trampling warrior in battle and every garment stained in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Meaning by his own means, in his own time, according to his own word, this great liberator, God himself, will not only destroy his enemies, he will destroy war itself. And in time, the tools and the tales of war will serve only to magnify the experience of peace. Because God not only wins the battle, he wins the war. And not only wins the war, but establishes peace. And not only establishes peace, but establishes peace forever. The question is... How will God do this? How, how will this come about? How will God accomplish such a feat of immense power as to overthrow even evil itself so that those within its grip who have set themselves against God as his enemies might be reconciled as his children, having their immeasurable penalty of treason paid? That they might live in his house, becoming sons and daughters of the one true king. What, what powerful figure will stand victoriously upon the world's center stage, reclaiming God's world and establishing his reign forever? Verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
Isaiah says this Messiah, this Christ, this Savior, the anointed one would come to us as a child. And this child, Isaiah says, would come unto us. To us who had abandoned God. To we who had sought out greater strengths or bowed to other idols or shook our fists at God and cursed him as a stone of offense. God sent the Savior as a child unto us. This child who centuries later would be born to a humble teenager in a filthy stable would be called Jesus of Nazareth. And he would be our wonderful counselor, the one who guides us in all truth. He would be mighty God, the son of God incarnate in human flesh and in a world of violence, distress, and unrest, he alone would be our prince of peace. How, how could God's people even dare to dream such a dream? How could, how could they even reach out, not only to believe the impossible, but to claim it as their sure and steady foundation, the rock upon which they can build their very lives? Because remember, they had wandered off. They had left God. How can they have such hope? How can they believe this will actually happen? Well, Isaiah says clearly, it's because, verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This word zeal biblically means, means a right and a furious jealousy. Like a father whose child has been taken away as a captive. Like a husband who is jealous for the love of his wayward wife. It's a word that says God is jealous for his glory and passionate for our salvation. It's a word that confirms that Jesus, gentle and lowly, is also Jesus, strong and bold. And he has been wrong. And those that he loves are being hurt. And because of his righteous, zealous love, the God that his people have abandoned has become their great pursuer. Therefore, as they wait, Isaiah says, they wait with hope. So how does this truth from the ancient book of Isaiah bring us hope today in our season of Advent. Well, Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The way to secure our hope to the faithfulness of God in the present is to remember God's faithfulness in the past. 
Again, we who hold the very word of God in our hands are those who have the audacious advantage of remembering the future. We hold to the hope of Jesus' second advent because he has already accomplished the first, just as he said he would. Therefore, whatever comes our way, whatever threatens us in this world because we belong to Christ, we can endure it with hope, with joy, and with peace, and with love. As we faithfully wait. Because our center is Christ. The way to know and experience the saving hand of God today and in the days to come. Is to look back to the baby Jesus in the manger. Just as they looked forward to him. And to say, I'm with him. This is the plan that I'm going with. I give myself to this. Impossible, foolish, ignorant, use all the words. But this baby is my fiercest ally. He is my king. This baby in the manger is my wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is my prince of peace. He is my hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am just overwhelmed by the miraculous nature of what we can declare. And the miraculous nature of what we declare has happened. Now this is history. You have done this. You have accomplished this. You have done this on our behalf. And you have given us your word that we might know you. That we might trust you and follow you. And you declare this word to us. And you give it to us together that we might trust and follow you together as guided by your spirit through your word. God, you have accomplished the impossible. And God, I fear. I fear that we hear this miraculous story and the beauty of what you have done. We just let it fall to the wayside. We don't care. We don't think it applies to us. We're too far gone. We don't think we need this. We're doing fine on our own. Oh God, break us. If that is our heart and our attitude, God, I thank you that you have promised to be a stone of offense. You have promised to be a stumbling block. That we might fall and that we might break and there in our brokenness find the beauty and truth of who you are. So God, I pray that you would do that today. Only you can. It's in the strong and powerful saving name of Jesus Christ I pray. Amen.